Welcome to the Modern Woodworkers Association podcast, where our mission is to provide woodworking education for all levels and all types of woodworkers. To find out more about the Modern Woodworkers Association, visit us on the web at modernwoodworkersassociation.com or follow us on Twitter at NWA underscore national. Now to our host, Tom Iovino, Diami Palatki. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight's special guest is Sam Hammery, but before we get to him... Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you, Mr. Tom Iovino. Tom, how you doing? Doing okay. You, 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 were you concerned? You, were you questioning your, your how you were feeling or what? I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm not as, as joyful as I should be. We're running into a couple technical issues, as you're too, too familiar with. But by the time this gets to our avid listener and your mom hears it, uh, hopefully she won't realize that we've had so much problems recording tonight. You know, I don't ever tell my mom how much difficulty goes into these because it just, you know, it, it makes she gets worried when she when she experiences that. So for her, it's much better for her to know that it's all going well and swimmingly. So that's, you know, so I feel pretty good about that. Yeah. Well, then awesome. it is all swimming. It is swimming. Yes. Yes, it is swimming. How was your uh, how was your Thanksgiving, Diami? It was very good. Very good. Had a bunch of family over locally. Um, how was yours, Tom? Mine was great. I cooked for 18 people. Two birds, I've heard. Two birds on the grill, and I smoked them using cherry wood, which was very nice. I must say, if you're going to try to smoke a bird, cherry wood's the way to go. It's got that nice, elegant fruit wood smell. Oh, it's perfect. All the neighbors came over. I had to smack them around with a big stick, tell them to get out of my shop. It was great. So, yeah, so we were at, we had tables everywhere, and people were dancing on them. It was it was just pandemonium. It was great, but we didn't need any pandas. But you sold some coffee tables, right? Um, I had a few relatives who had never seen the coffee tables before um, suddenly start asking questions. Uh, you know, can, can I get one or two or six? You know, I'd like to give some as gifts. And I said, man, don't work like that. I'm not <laughs> Ikea. So that was that kind of put the end to that. Um, the other thing that um, I noticed, uh, my, my niece and her fiancé came over, which was great. They had a nice, nice, uh, nice couple, really cute couple. Uh, but I discovered that my niece doesn't really want anything sentimental uh, for, for, uh, for the wedding. She wants a dining room table. And she lives all the way up in Jacksonville. So, you know, that's about a four-and-a-half-hour drive from Tampa. So, you know, i got to figure out some way to, you know – so, you know, she's going to be down here and I got to get it down to the wedding and it, it's going to be fun. Let's just say you have to get it to the May, wedding. You can't just get it to the I, house afterwards. I can get it to the house afterwards. But, you know, I don't know. We'll, we'll figure out some way to do it. We got to get a We got to rent a U-Haul or whatever. And get it up there. So no, I think she doesn't. She thinks she wants a dining room table. What she really wants for a wedding gift is a skateboard. You know, I never thought about that. But, you know, you're right. Mm-hmm. How about matching his and hers pair? Well, now you're getting ambitious. I would just print their initials in the bottom of a single skateboard and make them share it. They are married now. <laughs> I know. It's that whole joint property thing. <laughs> so so apparently neither one what, – what have you been doing? I mean, you haven't been doing much in the shop there, Diani. No, I haven't. As I'm in the shop now, I'm looking at the debris from the window seat build. I've still not cleaned it up. I got my table saw covered in plywood. Uh, I have been the last two weeks up in the attic working on a big wiring project so that we have light in the kitchen again. Let there be light in the kitchen. Mm. And you? 
I've been a uh, well. Besides my culinary duties, be cooking for all those folks and then entertaining them afterwards. I, we had to get all the Christmas lights up, and now we still have to do the inside of the house as far as decorating there. So we have our challenges um, coming up. So uh, I haven't been able to get much done in the shop, and then of course, you know, with the change in orders, you know, now I got to start thinking about that. But the one good thing was, though, my uh, my nieces and nephews being down, they wanted to go to the backyard fire pit. And uh, they wanted to uh, get rid of some of my scraps, which was really nice because I had some accumulating through the summer. So that was that was good to kind of open up a few buckets so I can start making some more scraps from the projects. It's always a bittersweet. It's always a bittersweet moment when you burn the scraps. It's always bittersweet. Mm. Yeah. So so, Diami, neither you nor I have a lot going on in the shop. Sam, what do you have? Sam, what do you what do you have going on, Sam? I've always got something going on in the shop. Right now, uh, the main project is my 111-year-old Victorian. You know, 111 years old, that'll keep you busy for a good long time, won't it? It will. Uh, I've been in it three years, and um, yeah, I've got majority of the work done on about six out of ten rooms. Uh, okay. So, you know, I'm, I'm just plugging along. It's uh, it's not a career. It's a love. It's uh, it's a house my wife and I have been looking for for 20 years, so we're just really happy with it. It's just a beautiful place to live. Um, but well, I've, I've now, Sam, I've seen just so you know, I've seen the before pictures, yep, and I've seen some of the in progress pictures, and you've done some incredible work on that house. It's you know, it's a lot of fun because I'm not on a schedule. I don't have to meet a budget. Um, I'm. You know, I'm just plodding along, enjoying myself, doing what I can do as I can do it. Okay, there's a lot to be said about that. It's a great way to do things after 30 years of custom cabinetry. Yeah, <laughs> yes, in that regard, it absolutely is. Now, Sam, how extensive a renovation are you doing in these rooms? Because my dad has a 120-ish-year-old colonial that uh, within a, a week or two of buying, we literally gutted to studs in every room. Are you going that intense, or you're just cleaning things up? Uh, I'm, uh, you know, various situations in various rooms. Um, in the master bedroom, we did exactly that. Uh, as a matter of fact, right now it's stripped down to studs. Okay. New insulation, um, you know, new drywall, new wainscoting, uh, all that. Um, and we're doing that mainly because that's the room we'll spend. A majority of time in uh, most of the, now you know originally the house had all plaster and lap walls mm-hmm. uh, some of the previous owners didn't feel like doing any repairs or fix up so basically at some point somebody came in and drywalled over all of that <laughs> oh <laughs> lovely <laughs> drywalled already and look I'm not in this to make it a museum um, it, this is a livable house and I'm trying to make it more comfortable and livable for a family uh, I don't intend to be here forever. Uh, I'd like to get back to the beach, actually. <laughs> but, um, you know, so the rooms that are in good shape, I'm just kind of leaving that and, and, you know, refinishing the trim and the floors. Uh, I mean, I've got all wood floors. All my ceilings are wood. Uh, Wainscoting in every room. Big, wide trim around all the windows and doors. Uh, nice. Quite a place. Um, you know, you can't get that new construction unless you pay an arm and a leg. No, you can't. And uh, I'll tell you, the house I raised my kids in was about you know twelve hundred square feet and uh, seven and eight foot ceilings. And uh, now we're empty nesters. We got twenty six hundred square feet. I got eleven and a half foot ceilings on the 
first floor and nine and a half on the second. <laughs> wow. I, you know, it's just, it's a tremendous place. It has a, a really big presence on the street. Um, there isn't another house that looks like this for a couple of miles. Okay. So stands out. And I'm, I'm, everybody in the area knows the house, and I'm just trying to get it back to where everyone can be proud that the house is actually here. Okay. Well, it sounds well, like you're willing to wait. I mean, yeah, seriously, Sam. I mean, for the pictures I've seen, it looks like you're you're not you're not you're not taking your time making this happen. It looks like you're really making some really good progress. Well, you know, I I spent a, a career busting my hump for other people, and um, there are certain aspects of this project that, yeah, I had to bust my hump and get it done. It, it really needed to be done. I mean, the, the first hole I plugged in this house was four feet square in the roof. Full of smokes. So the goal here is just to be in make those holes smaller and smaller and smaller. And now I'm down to a point at which the holes are pretty much cockable and you kind of have to hold a feather against the trim to find the, the wind coming through, you know? Nice. Okay. Um, I got all new windows, new roof, new uh, HVAC, uh, new appliances. Um, you know, I, I want it to be a functional house for a family at this point because it'll, it'll easily last another hundred years. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Well, you know, Sam, I mean, the funny thing is, you know, if you go to a, you go back, you go to Europe and you look at some of these homes, it was built in 1400 and they're still living in it. So, you know, I guess you can't get a few hundred years out of these homes, can you? Well, you should be able to. Um, I'll tell you one of the neat things about this house is that every piece of wood in the house was cut from the property. Wow. Oh, wow. So, There's history right there. Yeah, it's, it's very uh, history oriented. Actually, the guy that built the house was a friend of Thomas Edison, and I'm... 99% sure Mr. Edison's been in my house in 1906. Oh, wow. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm into the history of it. I'm actually, uh, I got a big, huge hallway uh, inside the front door, and I've got a wall in there where I'm putting a timeline of the house, and I plan on leaving it for the next owners at some point. And, okay. Uh, basically, I started in 1904 when it was built, and I ended it um, the year I bought it, which is uh, 2012. And then I added another foot of space on that line so that if anybody wants to add stuff in the future. <laughs> but uh, I'm just kind of going through. I'm doing a lot of research. I mean, I love the research. I love history. I love reading uh, about history. So I've done a lot of research uh, in various ways to find out what's going on with this house. One of the neat things I, I did here was I actually found the great-granddaughter of the guy that built the house. And, oh, get out. Um, she and her husband live out in Oregon. And we became Facebook friends, and I'm able to share pictures of the house with them, and they're thrilled about it. Crazy thing about this, though, is that uh, they have two daughters, and he's a cabinet maker, and I have two daughters, and I'm a cabinet maker. So we actually have this really good connection uh, wow. <laughs> between us, the house, and our lives. Great. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Work gets in the way, obviously. I, I still have to earn a living, so um, uh, sometimes of the year it's, it's hard to get anything done on the house, and I really feel like I'm slacking, but there are other times when the weather's absolutely perfect and everything's great, and I can get a lot done pretty quick. Well, Sam, Excellent. you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be glad to hear about that, but we're even more intrigued to hear about the, 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 the call of the work and the work you're doing. And, and I know that you work for, uh, for Erlex sprayers 
And um, and you're you're a frequently seen face on the woodworking show to a sur- show circuit. Say that and, again, uh, you're out the woodworking show circuit. I was going to say woodworking show tour circuit, but I got short circuited on the way in. So, <laughs> so Sam, you, you work for Earl X. You 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 you're always out there with those with those uh, HVLP guns. Let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, well, how much of a game changer is? spray shooting your finish and and hvlp in in uh specifically well i'll tell you i've I've been spraying with hvlp for about 20 years and um prior to that i'd use an air compressor like most guys in shops are um i've occasionally used an airless system for larger projects and that kind of stuff but um when i found the uh my first hvlp I just really fell in love with the way it's so easily controlled. It's so compact. It's a system you can carry into a home if you're refinishing something at a house. Um, it just, for me and the way I work, the way I do things, it's just a very convenient system. Um, and as opposed to an airless system where you have a lot of cleanup to do, HVLP, mm-hmm. you clean the gun at the end of the day. Um, I always tell people it's the first couple of times you clean that gun. Mm-hmm process. I've been doing it for 30 years. I can clean a gun in about eight minutes. Um, you know, so it's not really a difficult type of system to get used to or to, to utilize. And um, they don't wear out as quickly. You know, uh, if you start spraying with uh, an air compressor that's not large enough, you're going to burn that thing up quick. Yeah, okay. And that's an expensive piece of equipment that you really need for many things in your shop, but spraying actually isn't one of them. Sure. You know, so I like the HLP because they're dedicated turbines. They're built to run. Uh, you know, a good professional HLP is meant to run all day long, um, you know, spraying whatever you want to spray. And, and that's one of the things that, um, you know, I've also been spraying waterborne finishes for almost 30 years. And wow. To me, Waterborne and HVLP, they're like sisters. They go together. They should be together. It, it just makes the whole setup easy. And, uh, yeah, 30 years I've been spraying Waterborne. My, my original product I was using is Hydrocoat, and it's still around. Um, but I remember back when I started using it, and everybody else was just miserable. They hated it. They couldn't stand uh, how clear it was, first of all. They couldn't stand um, the... The learning process, you know, everybody, mm-hmm. all used to lacquer, we're all used to, you know, solvent-based finishes, and we've all used those forever, and uh, a lot of people just don't want to put the effort into learning anything new. Um, personally, I like change, and I think change is good, and when I found out about water base, I just thought, you know, this is a no-brainer. It, it, it makes cleanup so much easier. It takes away the health issues, uh, most of the health issues. You still want to protect yourself. I, I wear a dust mask. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go breathing it. Yeah. I'm never worried about explosion. I'm never worried about um, solvent getting in my eye or, you know, anything like that. So, uh, to me, it's just an easy way to go. Now, Sam, I'm intrigued by that because I've always stayed away from waterborne finishes because of not application, but the way it w- works on the wood. When you were talking about how other people would stay away from it, but you were using it even back in the day because of how easy it was to apply and how well it worked with the, with the HVLP systems, 
were you happy with the way it looks? Because my understanding is it's moved dramatically forward from you know 30 years ago to now in terms of looking much more like a traditional oil-based finish. Well, it has. It's, it's come a long way, and of course there's many, many companies now producing waterborne finishes. Um, so the technology has definitely uh, grown. Uh, yeah, I would say 30 years ago those finishes were a little... They would dry a little on the milky side sometimes. They certainly all apply milky, and they still do that. Mm -hmm. But they tend to dry absolutely clear. Now, in solvent-based lacquer, you have um, the ability to order what they call water white. And water white means that it's not supposed to impart that amber tone that a regular lacquer would impart. Okay. Well, all water-based finishes are water white. They're water. So they're absolutely clear. They're not imparting any color to your finish. Well, for me, that works because my work was always custom. And I would present a series of finished scraps to the customer and have them pick the one they want. Right. Well, if you don't show them anything that has the (laughs) solvent amber base finish, and this is their choice, they, they don't miss it. You know? Yeah. And that's the only complaint anybody ever has is it's not as warm. Well, it's not as warm because you didn't make it as warm. Okay? So here's the trick. Amber tint. You can get an amber dye. uh, Trans tint. You can get it at Woodcraft stores, for instance. Really easy. 20 bucks for about, uh, I don't know what it is, six ounces or something. You put two or three drops of that into a cork. Almost a lifetime supply, basically. Yeah. Those little $20 bottles last you forever. And three, three or four drops into a quart of clear finish, and you've got the amber tone, and it looks just like lacquer again. So there's really no reason uh, to stick with solvent base, except for maybe a couple of instances. For instance, if you're matching something. Okay. Uh, a lot of my work over my years was, you know, somebody'd call, they'd have a bedroom set that had, you know, three or four pieces, but they couldn't get uh, a TV center for it. I would build them a TV center, and I would have to match that finish. Um, in that case, occasionally, sometimes, it's easier to just use lacquer because that's what's on the other stuff anyway. Right. Sure. Now, you, we talked about the difference between the old and the new waterborne. Let me take that trans tint a little further because I, while I don't typically – I typically put my trans tint in a half-pound cut of shellac under my finish rather than dyeing the finish. But I'm actually really intrigued by – adding the transcent directly to a waterborne finish. These days, is there still a good, clear waterborne finish, or have they all moved towards that amber tone to mimic the oil-based finishes? Oh, no, no, they, they haven't moved towards that at all, as far as I can tell. Um, they, you know, it still comes out absolutely clear, water white. So if you want that amber, you have to add you know, in. Now, what you said about adding it to the shellac, that's that's... A great way to do it because what you're doing then is you're kind of treating it like a stain. Yeah. Where it's right on the wood. Um, there's a technique you can use. So if, you, if you've done that, right, you've got the amber and the shellac, that's on your base coat, your sealer coat. But now if you put amber into your top coats, what it does is it suspends it above the wood. And it gives you a depth. It actually creates a depth to that finish. Mm. This is a technique that you use a lot when you're doing a custom job because you want that richness of tone. You're trying to make it look as good as possible, obviously. Mm-hmm. 
So if you were to stain a piece of oak and then seal it with just a clear sealer, but then put an ounce of that stain into your top coat, now you're suspending the stain above the wood too. And depending on what color that stain is, and depending on how much you saturate that clear coat with it, you can create different effects where either it's um, kind of see-through, where you see that depth, or where you make it absolutely opaque and can't see through it. And uh, there's a lot of finishes out there like that these days. That, that was, that's been very popular lately, to have a, a very dark stain that's very opaque. Okay. Now, now, Sam, we, we, we've been throwing around the four, uh, the four letters, HVLP, high volume, low pressure. We're talking about the air pressure. I just want, I want to walk people through the basics about the system. Sure. Um, HVLP, high volume, low pressure. What that means is it's a lot of air, but at a low pressure. So it's almost exactly the opposite of what an air compressor setup would be. Air compressor is a small amount of air at a high pressure. Okay. That's what causes overspray. The higher the pressure is, the more overspray you get. And you don't want overspray necessarily because it's, first of all, it's wasted material that's just floating away. It doesn't land on your project at all. Okay. But it's landing somewhere, and now you've got to go clean it up. So that's, you know, that's one of the considerations with using HVLP. So my, my go-to system right now, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled with the Erlex 6003. It's a three-stage, and let me explain stages, because... Yeah, could you please? Yeah, uh, I, I get this question a lot, because people think what they're talking about is phases. You know, I get, you know, what does three-phase mean? Uh, well, it doesn't mean <laughs> to me. It's, that's an electrical thing. But um, stages just means how many fans are on the motor, okay? okay. So a two-stage has two fans pushing air, a three-stage has three fans pushing air, and so on. Okay. So, more fans you have, the more air it can move, the, it increases the CFM, and it increases the PSI. So, um, and, and there's a new trend going with HVLP these days. Um, the official designation of HVLP is 10 PSI or less. Okay. okay. Anything over 10 PSI is not considered true HVLP. It's not low pressure. It, it's not low pressure anymore. Exactly. Okay. So, uh, but I'm going to tell you this. Just about every company now is coming out with a six-stage uh, HVLP, and those are going to operate at about 12 PSI. So they still call them HVLP. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I'm kind of I'm a word guy. I, I think words mean something, and I think when you call <laughs> HVLP, you should be talking about the same thing that everybody else is talking about. Um, but, uh, you know, commerce is going to screw that up. They're just going to call everything probably under 25 PSI. They're going to call HVLP, and, and that's just going to get more confusing. Now, uh, by going up to that higher PSI, at some point, are you negating the benefit of the low pressure? It, or is the difference between, you know, 8, 10, and 12, they're all so low, it doesn't really matter? Well, at some point, it does start to matter. Um, with a thinner product, you're going to get more overspray, and the higher the pressure is, you're going to get more overspray. Um, I mean, I like to keep it to a minimum. So for me, the kind of work I do, furniture, cabinetry, trim, that kind of stuff, uh, a three-stage is fine. Uh, I get 5.5 PSI out of my 6003. Um, 
which is just great for most of the waterborne stuff goes right through, no problem. Uh, certainly real lacquer, solvent-based lacquer goes through there, no problem. Polys might need to be thinned a little bit to get the right okay. application. Um, and paints, for sure, have mm. to be thinned at that level. Now, if you want to spray latex paint with HVLP, if that's your main purpose, you want the strongest HVLP you can get. You, you know, I mean... I would say minimum of a four stage, so that you're getting about seven and a half to eight psi. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, if if you're a house painter and you want to use HVLP, you want the strong one. If you're a furniture maker using furniture finishes, you're fine with a uh, two, three, or four stage. Okay. Now, Sam, I mean, you know, for a lot of people, for a lot of woodworkers, finishing is like voodoo. It's like, you know, this, this, this part of the, you know, cause we're all, you know, geeked up about, you know, saws and, 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 you know, drills and routers and we're all geeked up about that in the wood selection. But for a lot of people finishes voodoo. Um, you know, it's kind of that thing that happens at the end that, you know, you, you, you put it on and it kind of makes or breaks the project. And more often than not for the early new woodworkers, it breaks it. Um, if somebody were to walk in, and say, okay, they wanted to go and throw away the paintbrush or the rag and the wipe on, and they wanted to get out their sprayer uh, to, to pick up an HVLP sprayer, what, what, what would you advise them to look for? Uh, and how but, would you advise them to get started? Well, uh, you know, a, a good starting point is a two-stage HVLP. Okay. That's really all you need for, uh, you know, uh, beginning sprayers. It's, it's enough to get you going, to understand how it works, get the system uh, working for you. I mean, I sprayed out of a two-stage for 15 years of my career. Um, Never had an issue with it. Um, I have a theory about why people are scared of finishing. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, I don't want to upset anybody, but honestly, at all the shows I go to, and I, I do about 15 to 20 woodworking shows a year, um, when I'm in the room, what I notice is that just about every demonstrator in every booth has a product that cuts wood or changes the shape of wood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Usually the only guy that puts a finish on the wood. Oh, yeah. The project is not finished until it's finished, my friends. <laughs> so I, I really encourage everybody to get involved in finishing. It's not difficult. What's difficult is thinking that you're going to be Peter Gedry's the first time you, you, know, you apply a finish. It doesn't work that way. It takes some practice, just like cutting a board on a table saw takes some practice. Um, using a bandsaw takes practice. So this isn't any different. But here's where people go wrong. They'll spend four months building their coffee table because that's all they're doing. And then they're scared to death they're going to ruin it with finish. Sure. My question would be, why would you try to finish your coffee table you've worked on for four months when you don't know how to do it yet? Right? Mm. Build something for kid. Build build a scrap bench for the backyard. Do something that's not quite as important as uh, your niece's dining table. (laughs) Okay, okay, all right, I get the word, okay. (laughs) You don't, that, that shouldn't be your first finishing project. Now, even after building for 30 years and finishing, I always keep a scrap of material from the project 
off to the side that I'm going to finish before I finish the project. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it might be a, a, a one-foot square scrap of uh, plywood from the project or uh, a six-inch wide by 12-inch long uh, solid wood from the project, whatever it is. And I work that material exactly the same as everything else. In other words, if I'm sanding the kitchen to 220, I'm sanding that scrap to 220. I'm doing sure. all the prep work exactly the same on the project as I am on that scrap. Now I have that scrap to practice on. Right. And you can see exactly what the finish will look like. Exactly. And that's what you want to do. Even with experience, I'm telling you, the best finishers in the world still do this. They don't just go right to their, their project that they've put their heart and soul into and start throwing stain on it because it doesn't make sense to do that. Right. You're right. That's the easiest. Mm-hmm. You know, my motto for years, Sam, was the easiest way to ruin a perfectly good woodworking project was to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> and you are the problem, Tom. And believe me, there's still days I think that. So it's not like it's it's completely left me. Sam, what are somebody? What are, if somebody was getting into HVLP, what would be? What do you think are the like the two or three biggest mistakes people make? And I know one of them is obviously not testing it. All right, so okay. a, a, another mistake people make, um, I, I do a, I mean, I do this all day long, every day. Um, I'm talking to guys that are spraying. And most guys have been spraying with something, and then they get an HVLP, all right? So let's say, let's go back to our comparison of the air compressor versus the HVLP, right? Okay. With the air compressor, you're going to have the... Uh, Gun set at maybe 35 PSI. Um, You're going to spray from about maybe 12 inches away from the project. And, you know, you're going to move at a certain speed across the project so you're laying down a nice even coat. Um, And then they switch over to HVLP, and all of a sudden they're operating at 2.5 PSI instead of 25 or 35. Um, And they're trying to spray from... 12 to 15 inches away. Well, the primo location for HVLP is six inches from the project. Okay. It's that close. That's close, right. That's that's where you're getting your prime atomization, right? Okay. What you're looking for in atomization is equal size droplets that are round and equally spaced from one another. Any other situation is not good. Um, so... The things that HVLP eliminates, and I'll go back to my compressor analogy, the the compressor has, it doesn't just compress the air, it compresses the moisture in the air, it compresses the contamination that's in the air. Sure, oils, things like that, sure. Exactly, and it pushes that stuff right through the hose and into the gun. So to prevent that, you have to have a vapor block, a moisture barrier, you know, uh, filters, you know. You know, $100 to $200 worth of extra stuff in line to prevent that from getting to your gun. That's all eliminated by using HVLP because HVLP uses warm, dry air to move your product. So you never have a contamination issue unless you put contamination into it, right? Okay. So I'll say this right now. uh, No silicone should ever be anywhere near your finish area. No 3-in-1, no WD-40. Nothing like that. No, uh, what's the other stuff? The glide, the, you know, nothing like that should be in there. 
um, the only material that you should use to either lubricate or, or oil up the gun uh, is mineral oil, baby oil, or Vaseline. Okay. And it's a very simple process uh, to maintain that gun. Let me get into that a little bit um, because you know, I'll get back to the cleaning thing, right? Nobody wants to clean, right? Mm-hmm. You're happy to be in there. I mean, we're, we're guys, right? We're Tim Allen. We all are. We want to be in there with that sawdust. We want the, the loud tools running. We want to make something. Um, nobody wants to take a broom out and sweep the floor, though. Sure. And that's that's what leads to a lot of issues with finishing, with uh, any kind of spray finishing, actually, any equipment you might use. If you don't clean up the area around where you're finishing, you are going to get you know some dust from the project into the finish on the project. And you really don't want that because uh, at that point you're you're back to sanding it all off um, practically down to bare wood again. Um, so I, I encourage people to, uh, if you have room, to create a space where you can clean it when you need to or keep it clean on a constant basis. Um, I'm just like most guys. I love the sawdust, the smell. I hate cleaning the shop up. But I'll tell you what, the day before I finish is the day I'm going to clean the shop. And generally what I'll do is I get up on a ladder with my air nozzle on the, from the compressor because dust floats, and it's going to be up on top of everything first. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So I get up high, and I blow everything off, and I just keep blowing it off of the highest things, and I move down into the shop. I get it all down on the floor. Now, once it's on the floor, you can't blow it around because all it's going to do is go back up. Once it's on the floor, you want to let it settle and you want to sweep it out. You sweep it into a pile and you pick it up with a dustpan and you carry it gently out of the shop. (laughs) I do that to my whole shop because when I finish, I want everything clean. I don't have time to have that kind of an issue. And here's your saying. If you have time to fix it, you had time to do it right the first time. And there we go. Yeah. So clean the damn shop before you start spraying. See, I like the way you're thinking. This is this is good. I like this. Right. So so these are the big problems. So you know, keeping the shop clean. You know, making sure that you're not you know getting too far away from it. Otherwise, you get the orange peel. Right. All right. Let's talk about orange peel a little more. Oh, let's let's talk about it. Yeah, I, I am in Florida, so orange peels are one of my favorite topics. So orange peel is about the only problem left when you're spraying with HVLP. Um, but a lot of people seem to think that the system is creating the orange peel. Orange peel is actually a result of the finish drying too fast and not leveling out, right? So finish okay. is all about evenness of application and level, all right? Mm-hmm. So um, there's a couple of ways that orange peel happens. First of all, if you, uh, I was talking before about the closeness of the atomization, right? The equal spacing of the droplets, the size of the droplets. Um, if you have too much material in the airflow, it can overwhelm an HVLP sprayer. And it won't mm-hmm. be able to atomize it all properly. So what it does is it atomizes as much as it can, and then it spits the rest, mm-hmm. right? Now, spit is almost always going to dry as orange peel. Right? The thicker the material is that you're spraying, the more likely it is going to dry as orange peel. Because yeah, it won't level out, yeah. 
don't have time to level out, right? Um, now, one of the things that one of the finishes that gets a lot of orange peel is latex paint. Yeah, um, and I have some very strong opinions about latex paint, um, so I'll try and say them in the nicest way possible. Remember, we are PG thirteen. Yes, latex paint is not a finish. Latex paint is a coating, and that's different. You can't put a coating on furniture or cabinetry and expect it to last. So what a lot of people do is they compensate for that by putting the coating on and then putting a clear finish over the top of it. Now, to me, I, you know, I understand that you can do that. I understand that for a lot of people, that's the easiest way to get a color, you know, if you're doing a solid color project. Mm-hmm. Um, the right way to do it is with a tinted top coat. Um, so we're back to the dyes, right? The transparent yeah. dyes. They come in, I don't know, 38 different colors or something ridiculous. Uh, you can create your own solid color finish. Uh, a lot of companies that make finishes will mix color for you. Um, and they, if, even if they don't mix color, pretty much all of them will have a black top coat, a white top coat, and then the clear. Mm-hmm. So it, you have those where you can just buy them. Now, what that does for you is a couple of things. First of all, um, it gives you the right type of finish for the project that you're doing. It also gives you a finish that's designed to be sprayed. Latex is not designed to be sprayed, okay? Uh, and I'm going to tell you why. This is the only science I'm going to give you tonight. <laughs> Good, I'm, I'm waiting for it. Okay, the molecules in every other finish are dots. And it's okay. easy to atomize dots into smaller dots. But the molecules in latex are spaghetti. And that's mm. why it doesn't spray well. Imagine filling your gun with a bunch of wet spaghetti noodles and trying to get them to line up nicely and spray out that nozzle. It's just not going to happen. Sam, that's, Sam, that sounds like my house on Sunday afternoon. I, but usually not... the spaghetti's covered with gravy, so. <laughs> well, listen, I'm going to tell you, even though I just said latex is not a finish and it's not the right thing to put on cabinets or furniture, I'm going to tell you how, how to make it spray better, okay? What I do with my latex is I thin it 10% with water. Okay. I also add two ounces of Floetrol per quart, and then I mix it with a, a mixer in a drill. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I'm going to explain why I do all those things. First of all, uh, when you walk into a store and you buy latex paint and they ask you, do you want a thinner? The answer that you should give them is, no thanks, I have plenty coming out of my tap at home. There we go. It's the only proper thinner for latex. Floetrol is not a thinner, but that's what they'll sell it to you as at the stores. Floetrol is actually a chemical additive that breaks the surface tension of the paint. So it was designed for brush strokes, to remove brush strokes when you're uh, you know, brushing trim or something. Uh, it works equally well when you're spraying droplets out. So picture those droplets. They're, you know, they're round droplets. They have a certain width and a certain height. If they don't level, what, what happens? They become orange peel. Mm-hmm. So by thinning slightly with water, 
And adding Floetrol, which breaks the surface tension, it helps it to level a little bit faster. And the Floetrol also extends the dry time slightly. Okay. okay. So and that'll give a little more time to lay out. Exactly. It gives it more time. And that's what you're trying to do. Now, another way to create that is to just apply a little bit heavier coat. Uh, and this all comes down to experience at this point, because you have to you have to know how thick you apply the coat, and then uh, you know whether it's going to work that way or whether it needs to be thicker. Uh, I tend to err on the thick side rather than the thin side. Okay. Inside, uh, it's more likely that it's going to be orange peel. And what a lot of guys do when they're switching from an air compressor system or you know any high pressure system to HVLP is they might understand everything else, but they're used to moving this fast across the project. Well, you can't move this fast. Now with HVLP, you're going to move this fast. Okay. Okay. So it's a little bit slower application, but it's absolutely more precise and you're spraying a lot less material. Nice. And, and I have a, a story, a short, I have a, a short, long story. Like that. Um, Everybody would ask me years ago, they'd keep asking me, you know, can I paint my house with this? And my answer usually was, well, sure you can. I don't know why you would. Uh, you, know, <laughs> the, uh, you know, airless sprayers are designed for spraying latex paint and for house type projects. Well, at one point, my boss uh, heard me say that and he said, uh, I'd like you to paint your house with the HVLP. <laughs> with a 5,500. And I said, yeah, yeah, I don't really want to do that. And he said, well, I'll buy the paint. I said, okay. <laughs> so when I moved into that house and, and I'm talking about this house down in Florida by you, Tom. Okay. I, I painted that house when I moved in with, uh, an airless, a, a roller and a brush. And I'm just talking the exterior of the house. And I used 10 gallons of paint. So when my boss bought me paint, I said, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to need about 10 gallons. You know, he handed me money. I went and I bought 10 gallons. I used four. Really? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, the overspray. The overspray on an airless sprayer, on a big, you know, contractor-style airless sprayer, is about 65%. At 65% of the paint you're spraying, does not land on the project you're aiming it at. Hmm. That's a huge loss in material and cost and time, right? Mm -hmm. With HVLP, it's about 10%. Yes. So think about that. If you spend $100 on paint and spray it with an airless, you just threw away $65. You spend $100 on paint and spray it through an HVLP, you only threw out about $10. Which would you rather do? <laughs> Get out. Come on now. It's kind of a no-brainer. Now, here's what everybody's probably thinking is, well, sure, you probably painted the house in one day the first time, and it probably took you six weeks the second time. Absolutely not true. Because the first time I sprayed the house with the airless, I had drop cloths everywhere. I had taped off windows. Um... Anything that needed to be covered, I had to cover. Mm -hmm. With the HLP, I did not use the first piece of tape or the first drop cloth. I used a shield. Okay. 
That's all oh, you're able to spray right up. Uh, I sprayed right up to the shield. I held the shield up to the window edges. I sprayed right to it. You can do that with HLP because it's not putting paint everywhere. It's putting it where you want it. That's the advantage. So to relate this back to furniture, again, I'm going to spend $100 on five gallons of lacquer. Do I want to throw $65 worth of that away, or do I only want to throw $10 worth of that away? And the only way to not throw any of it away is to brush it. But then you're back to a lot of time to do that. Yeah, that yeah that gets a little that gets a little crazy, and then you end up with brush strokes. And and in my case, you know, like brush, you know, fibers in it and all that stuff. That's <laughs> kind of what I'm trying to avoid from here on out. Exactly. So now, now happened. there's one there's Sam. There's one really good question now that I that I need help with. Okay, Diami <laughs> needs help setting up. The spray station HV5500, he has, may or may or may not have in his attic. Okay. So he, he, yeah. he may need some help. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Let, let me give you the basics. Okay. Um, First, find it, Diami. <laughs> find it, please. Oh, with all this wiring, I actually know exactly where it is. Okay, good. <laughs> so uh, it, that gun comes with a two millimeter needle in it. Um, that's the general purpose needle. You know, if you're going to paint the fence, the deck, the, you know, the wall, that's fine. Um, for furniture or cabinetry or trim, I switch to my 1.5 millimeter. So that's, that's the first thing you probably want to do for your projects. So, okay. You know, get that 1.5 in there. Um, and I always tell people to load it with water first, you know, the, the people that are maddest when they call me are the <laughs> ones that took it out of the box, put finish in it, and sprayed the end table. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> those, those are the upset people. Um, the people that aren't so mad are the people that think a little bit about it. They put water in it first. Let's see how it sprays. Let's see how I can adjust it. You know, um, And I'm going to give you a, an exercise to do. And you, and you can do this with any gun. Um, and basically, it's how you find the setting. Uh, or how you practice attaining the correct setting for the gun, right? So what I want you to do is you go ahead and put the right needle in there, fill the cup up with water. Mm-hmm. The knob on the back of the gun controls how much fluid comes out of the gun. So I want you to open that up too far. I want you to go three, four full turns, okay? okay. What that's going to do is it's going to allow too much fluid out. And, and I, as I mentioned before, you can overwhelm the air. So that's what it's going to do. It's going to atomize what it can, and it's going to spit the rest. And what that's going to look like, is, and, and basically to see this, you can kind of you know, step outside with this and kind of spray up towards the sky a little bit, uh, you know, if it's kind of night day, so that you can look through that mist as you're spraying. Okay. Okay, so what you're going to see is that the finely atomized material is very misty, and it continues out from the gun in a straight line and basically just goes off in the distance and disappears. The spit is going to go out about 12 inches and fall through that mist. And it's going to be very easy to see with water. Um, All you have to do is cut down on the fluid flow. Cut down on the amount of material coming out of the gun. The first part of material that disappears is the spit. Okay, so you're dialing down the fluid quantity until you don't have any spit. It's all misting. Right. Now... 
lot of guys look at it like this and they go, well, great. Now that I've got that setting, I'm going to take my Sharpie and I'm going to put a line on that, on that little knob on the back of the gun and that's my setting. And there's a problem with that, my friends. That setting is good that day for that material that you've got in the gun with that needle. It's called water, yes. <laughs> Anything else you put in there is going to be a little bit different setting. Now, I'm not going to say that it's going to be a dramatically different setting, but it is going to be a different setting. Okay. The humidity in your air from one day to the next can cause you to have a different setting. So this isn't something where you can just have, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of process. And that's why I want you to get used to looking through that, that spray pattern, seeing, identifying the spit, and eliminating it by cutting down on the fluid flow. Mm -hmm. that, now, when you do it with a clear finish, uh, obviously you don't want to go, you know, standing outside spraying up into the air too much. Um, so you can spray onto, uh, I like using brown paper, because okay. paper, unlike wood, paper will show those droplets wherever they land. Right? If I spray a clear coat on wood, it just becomes a clear coat, and you can't really see the droplets as well. But on paper, it kind of stains in a little bit, so you can see where those droplets are, you can see the sizes and shapes of them. And again, you want to be six inches away for this process. I like setting the gun on the detail pattern, uh, which is accomplished on the, the air cap on the front of the gun. On the 5500, you have three fan positions. You have vertical fan, horizontal fan, and detail pattern, which is basically just a circle, a round pattern. So when I'm adjusting my gun, I go to that detail pattern because overall I'm looking for roundness, right? Mm -hmm. And if, if that gun is opened up four or five turns and I spray onto my piece of paper, what I'm going to see is um, a big solid covered dot in the center. And then around the edge of that, there's going to be various sized droplets that are separated from one another. And that's where you need to look. For this process that's where you need to see whether you've got small droplets or big droplets or fine atomization or spit basically um, and you want to eliminate that spit now also the pattern overall the shape of that pattern the whole thing taken as a whole is going to be oblong and what we want is round mm -hmm. not just round droplets but round pattern when we're set on that detail pattern so again, that's another thing you can watch when you're adjusting the gun to get that roundness, that perfectly round distribution of material. Okay. Right? So now you've uh, adjusted the gun. You've got your material in there. It's spraying the want to spray. Um, now is the time to do that little side project that's not as important as Nisa's dining table. Nice. Re refinish a chair. Um, build a little bench. Uh, you know, Make something for the kids. You know, whatever it is. Something that will give you something to spray on where you want a really good finish. But, you know, hey, if it doesn't come out perfect this first time, uh, it's not going to be judged too harshly. Right. Gotcha. So, um, uh, again, I, I highly recommend waterborne, water-based finishes. They just make it easy. Um, Gotta love it. Sam, do it. You know, there, I have no other answer for you guys. This, this, this exactly. it, it's like the Nike commercial. Just do it. Yeah. You got to get out there, right? Sam, right. Let, me, let me ask you another question related to that. You're talking about the minimal overspray. Um, I'm in a one car garage. Is it possible to spray a small item in here without 
safing off the entire garage? Can I just, you know, put up a couple sheets of foam board against the garage door and spray there without having to cover everything else? Or will I get spray everywhere? Well, um, do you have any kind of ventilation in there? Uh, I I have windows and a, and a, and a central fan, but um, I don't have, like, directed exhaust. Okay. All right. So here's one of the nice things about the HVLP. Again, the overspray that's floating around mm-hmm. is going to dry very quickly because it's really fine atomization. And usually when it lands anywhere, say, two feet or farther away from the actual project, it's pretty much going to land as dust and can be swept up. Okay. Hmm. It's only that closest stuff that you have to be careful of. So here's what I would recommend. Get yourself a $20 box fan at Walmart. Stick it in that win- that open window mm-hmm. and blow it out. Right. Okay? What that'll do is it'll pick up 90% of that overspray, and it will carry it right out that window. Now, whatever's outside that window is going to become that color. That's okay. okay. It just trees. So, yeah, make sure that your wife's car. It's just the meters. It's okay. You know anything like that? Um, if the wind, if there's actually glass in that window, it's going to get covered with this finish. Okay, um, but uh, you know what's more important: the project or a window in the garage? <laughs> you I like your priorities. Out. This is the way to yeah. go. Uh, yeah, um, but basically, yeah, you should be able to spray right there in the garage. I, I would. I would certainly, um, I mean, obviously in a one car like that, and, and I started my career on my back porch, which was uh, 10 by 14. Okay. So, so I, I know where you're coming from here. Um, I would probably create a, kind of a three-sided booth. Mm-hmm. I know what you're talking about. You know, just three pieces of cardboard that are six feet tall that you can kind of tape together. Um you can go to an appliance store and get an old box or something to make this out of, uh, you know. But you have to keep the kids out of it, though, for a while. Yeah, well, if you have little kids, yeah, you not show it as a box at any Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I actually have a friend that just gave his kid for his birthday. His kid wanted a big box to play in, and he wrapped it <laughs> and gave it to him. Beautiful. Uh, so, yeah, I would create a little three-sided thing because at least that gives you a backdrop to spray against because – um, the material that doesn't hit your project, that actually goes past it, and we call that through spray. Okay. It goes through the project, basically. Um, that material can go 20 feet away. You know? Okay. So you do want to have something there to catch that material as it's going along. But yeah, you shouldn't have any problem. I, I, again, box fan will take care of all that overspray, and um, you just need to take care of the immediate area around the project. Okay. Beautiful thing. Sam, where can people find out more about these sprayers, these, these awesome HVLP sprayers? Uh, Erlex.com is a okay. place to be. Um, uh, I'm on Lumberjocks.com. They can call me direct. Uh, the uh, Erlex customer service number rings my desk. Get uh, out. Help. So, so people can call you and, and speak to you at work. Well, that's my day job, yes. Okay. Uh, okay. show. I'm doing is answering the phone all day, uh, helping people fix their spraying problems or, uh, you know, whether it's an actual spray system problem or if it's a finishing problem. Or uh, it's a technique problem. <laughs> technique problem. That's, that's what I do all day long. So uh, the Erlex uh, 
uh, customer service number uh, is uh, 888-783-2612, and that rings right at my desk Monday through Friday. Okay, I love it. Got I'm sure you get a lot of happy folks. Um, Sam, I cannot thank you enough. This was uh, actually a, one of the most enlightening shows ever because this is one of those topics that people tend to shy away from. We jump Absolutely. in with mortising chisels and routers and table saws and bandsaws, but we're, we're scared to death of finish. So yep. this is really one of those enlightening, enlightening shows we've done. Well, that's good news. I'm happy to come back and do it again. Outstanding. We'll have to, we'll have to see you. And you're going to be out on the tour with the, uh, with the woodworking shows, correct? Yeah, they uh, changed the schedule this year. It's starting in January. And uh, okay. there's 13 shows this year, and it uh, looks like I'm doing all 13. Well, then nice. I'll see you in New Jersey. And I'll see you in Tampa. And I'll see you in Tampa. Absolutely. Right now, awesome. I'm doing all the shows. Awesome, Sam. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Okay. Hey, Diaby, speaking about shows, woodworking shows, you are going to be traveling in 2016 as well, aren't we? Yes, we will. A couple of shows. So we're going to be at two of them. Are you going to be at two of them, two of the big national ones? Um, tell, let, let's let them know. Well, uh, for the first, for both of us, we're, uh, we're weekend with Wood Virgins, and uh, we're going to pop that cherry in 2016. Go gentle with us. <laughs> and that's going to be on May 19th through the 22nd in Des Moines, uh, and that's in Iowa. So I think you fly into the Quad Cities Airport. I'm, I'll have to find out. Then we'll get more travel arrangements. Yeah, me. but I'm, I'm very interested to, to do that show. After talking with Chet Kloss uh, a couple months ago now at this point about that show – um, it seems to have a bit of a different flavor than than the other shows, and it, I, I'm excited to, to to try it out and to see what oh, sure. what is about. And, and we'll be bunking together. It'll be it'll be lovely. We'll we'll, we'll split a room. It'll be great. That's and then, enough to go. I know, isn't it great? And then if you couldn't get enough of me in Des Moines, Iowa, we're going to be at Working America 2016, which is September 16th through the 18th. Back in Covington, Kentucky, just across the Ohio River from the from Cincinnati, mm. Porkopolis <laughs> or Porkopolis, I can't remember which one. So um, we're going to be there. We're going to be having a good time, just like normal. Uh, meet all the folks. It'll be it'll be a good time. So um, it's like going. So home. yeah. So definitely mark your calendars for May nineteenth to the twenty second for Weekend with Wood and Woodworking in America for uh, September sixteenth through the eighteenth. And with that, that wraps it up for the show. If you're missing us already, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Just search for the Modern Woodworkers Association. Once you're subscribed, be sure to never miss another exciting, fun-filled, action-packed episode. And while you're at iTunes, please leave us a five-star rating, especially if you don't think we deserve one. It helps our rank so others can more easily find us. If you want to find out more about the Modern Woodworkers Association, be sure to visit modernwoodworkersassociation.com, follow the MWA on Twitter at MWA underscore national, like the MWA on Facebook, or circle the Modern Woodworkers Association on Google+. And while you're there, join the MWA Google Plus community for project sharing, discussion, and loads of woodworking banter. Banter, I love that word. <laughs> well, uh, I have been for the evening, Diami Plotke of penultimatewoodshop.com, and on the Twitters, I am at Diami Plotke. And uh, I, for for the current time being, will still be the resident shop monkey, Tom Iavino of Tom'sWorkbench.com and at Tom's Workbench on Twitter. Until we see you again, we wish you all happy sawdust. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>